Hey everybody, this is Gene Troyer. I'm the lead pastor of Restore Church. And what a pleasure it is to welcome you to our podcast. It's my hope that you will be marked by love and encouraged in your faith and inspired to become all God has created you to be. Now I invite you to lean in and enjoy the podcast. Good morning, my name's Gene. I'm part of the team here at Restore. And I want to go right into Luke chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, you can uh, turn to that, or you can just listen up to the story that is familiar to many of us. This is a paraphrase by Bob Hamp, author Bob Hamp, who wrote this story um, as a paraphrase from Luke 19. Like the cold air that hits as a storm arrives, the shame washed over him. The feeling was so familiar, he just accepted it as his birthright. Why should he expect otherwise? From as far back as he could remember, people had looked at him with scorn and contempt. He'd lived with this so long, he didn't even realize how much his heart had shriveled. This cold, hard feeling inside was just the way it had always been. He was born to a fairly typical Jewish family, but he'd been different straight out of the womb. He was born a lot smaller than his siblings, and it seemed he would never grow. His brothers and sisters literally towered over him. Surely, he thought, God had cursed him. And as a result, his body didn't behave like everyone else in his little village. Even now, as he'd come of age, he was often stared at, he was mocked at, he was spit upon. This was just his lot in life. But Zach was not the kind of man to just surrender, and especially not to God, since God seemed to have overlooked him. And he was spending his life fighting back against this cruel trick of nature. So when the Romans took over, it seemed that God, and if not God, at least fate, had afforded him an opportunity to get revenge, the revenge that he had always wanted, the revenge that his shrinking heart had been looking to exact on the very community that had tortured him The empire, the Roman Empire, had searched for local people who would go and collect taxes from the people of his area. And they, in turn, would back them up with the centurions that would make sure that the Roman taxation required from these people, from the village people, would be received. And by the way, Zach could also exact additional taxes for his own personal income. So this position gave him many opportunities to make these people pay. And it also amplified Zach's lifelong experience of being by himself, alone. The people in his village looked down on him, but not, but not just as his weird anomaly, but now as a traitor. The scorn in their eyes increased and he felt ever more like an outcast. Now I'll add to this that even the Romans would look down on him. To them, he was just a necessary evil, and even they saw the kind of man that he really was, the kind of man that could essentially empty the pockets of his own people. For Zach, this position seemed to strengthen and validate the belief that this was just simply his lot in life. He was was an outsider with no real companions, an outsider that would sit down to dinner, would sit down at every meal alone. The more rejected he felt, the more angry he became. The more angry he became, the more his heart shriveled. And the more his heart shriveled, the more he vowed to wring every last bit of revenge from his community. He was caught in this 
vicious cycle of shame and hatred, and he really couldn't tell if he hated himself more or other people hated him. The experience of shame and self-loathing began each day when he stepped out of his home. The scathing looks of his neighbors and the consuming wave of shame was the way each day began. He didn't have to wonder who he was. His life let him know each day. Though he didn't admit it, the most difficult thing he faced every day was living with the way the people looked at him with contempt. So why would this day be any different? Just like every other day, he began his walk down to the outpost to gather his supplies for the day. And just like every other day, he was receiving those withering, painful stares from the people, from the men and women as he walked through the village. He was short of stature, always an oddball in his little village. His, his physical size and, and now his, his alliance with the Romans, extorting money from his own people, made him ever more of an outcast. And he could feel the shame start closing in. Mentally, he began to build that wall again to protect himself from the pain. But then as he drew closer to the center of town, he began to realize that no one was looking at him anymore. Everybody seemed to be focused on a gathering crowd over by the stand of trees. Townspeople hurried by him, walking with purpose to get to the gathering. His interest grew as he saw how this, this, this crowd was gathering around these sycamore trees. Because not much ever happened in his little village, but there was definitely something going on over there. And he had to see what it was. So as he stepped in and tried to wiggle his way forward, he realized the crowd was really dense. It was way too dense for him to get through. Emotions were high. The people were pushing in and trying to get closer to the center. And at his height, he couldn't see beyond the backs and shoulders of all these people. This made him even more curious. And while he couldn't see, he could hear the sounds. Occasionally, he'd hear a man's voice over the sound of the crowd. And then he could hear crying through it, though it was difficult to tell if the sound was of pain or joy. Then there were moments of silence like everyone was holding their breath. And then shouts of joy. Something was going on in this crowd. Zach was smart and he was inventive. And he looked up into the trees on the edge of the crowd and he had an idea. You know, from those trees, he could get above the crowd and look down into the middle of all this action. So he ran over to the trees and he began to climb. He found a perch that allowed him to see down into the crowd but as he settled into the branches, he had second thoughts. In his curiosity, he had all but forgotten how much he wanted to avoid the attention of these people. If they looked up, he was right there for everybody to see. But it was too late. He was committed, so he, he planted his feet and he looked down. And what he saw was a man. But he realized right away why this crowd was here. This man was the man that the whole nation had been talking about. This man was Jesus the Nazarene. Both the Jews and the Romans had said he might be God. Zach watched in amazement and growing fear as his own people surrounded this man. On the ground nearby were a pair of crutches lying there with no owner. Just below him was a mother clutching her child and weeping. And then some men in robes stood a few feet back and somehow seemed to be grading Jesus on his performance. Crowding in all around were people with obvious needs, people that needed healing, people with bandages and crutches, people whose bodies were stooped over with injury and disease. These were the people of his town, and Jesus was taking the time to talk to each of them, one at a time, in the midst of this chaos. And as he spoke, 
he would touch and look into their eyes. Zacchaeus drew back on his perch in the tree. And he thought to himself, there is no way this man could be God. The God who played this cruel trick on him and had abandoned him to this life of pain and rejection would never act like this man below him. The God he knew was hard. The God he knew was distant. The God of this little town was like his neighbors and the religious leaders of his town, cruel and aloof, if they paid any attention at all. He ran unconsciously through all of the ways that he was going to be dismissing these thoughts of what if this was God. But even if it was God, he knew that he would never look up at Zacchaeus. Or if he did, it would be with scorn and maybe even with the intent to throw him down out of the tree and kind of shoo him away with all the others who were deserving of the attention of God. Lost in his thoughts for a moment, Zach didn't notice that Jesus had finished with the person he was talking to. His ears tuned in just in time to hear Jesus say something about coming to seek and save what was lost. And then Jesus looked right up at him. It wasn't a glance. It wasn't just a quick look and then a look away. Jesus actually looked Zacchaeus straight in the eyes. It was actually Zacchaeus who turned away. It was an unconscious, automatic thing he did to avoid the shame of the people when they looked at him. He looked away hoping that Jesus would turn his attention back to the crowd on the ground. But when he looked back, Jesus was still looking at him, intently looking at him. Was he looking at him? It felt like he was looking through him. The crazy part was that Zach's, what, what Zach saw was when he looked again into Jesus' eyes, well, maybe what he saw isn't the right word, but something happened. Because what he didn't see was scorn. The absence of scorn was as potent as the presence of love. Something tangible in the steady gaze of Jesus almost seemed to reach inside Zacchaeus and push against all the poison in his soul. And the poison seemed to back down. Jesus' gaze never wavered. And yet something inside Zacchaeus not only wavered, but it seemed to surrender under the weight of his gaze what happened next shocked him even more. Jesus called him by his name. He couldn't remember the last time another person had spoken his name. He'd been called lots of things, lots of things over the years. But anytime he heard his own name, it sounded just like any other curse that was constantly leveled at him. Jesus spoke his name like he was somebody, like he was a real person with real value and real worth. Zacchaeus had climbed up the tree to see he had not expected to be seen. Jesus told him to climb down and announced that this ministry time was over. He was going to hang out with his new friend Zacchaeus. Just the two of them were going to lunch. And with every word, things were shifting inside Zac. It was almost as if this man's words had the power to do things and make things so. His defenses seemed to melt. His heart felt like it was beating differently. The way he had seen himself just moments earlier seemed to shift as Jesus looked a new way of being into him. As Jesus and Zacchaeus went to lunch, the people shook their heads at the decision to eat with such a notorious sinner. But what the people said didn't matter. Zac had lunch with God and God did not scold him. God did not look at him like every other human had his entire life. God respected him. God actually seemed to enjoy him. 
Zach couldn't remember the last time he had experienced any type of joy. But as he relaxed in the presence of Jesus, he could feel some other things shifting as well. Because you see, in the presence of Jesus, his next steps became clear. He had to make things right with those he had cheated. He had to make things right with those he had wronged. And he, needed, he wanted to live into the forgiveness and grace that he was in that moment experiencing. You'll find this story in Luke chapter 19. Jesus was going about his work. He was, his, he was walking from village to village. And he's walking into the village of Judea. And this happens. I have to believe that it happened because Zacchaeus was at the right place at the right time. Jesus saw him. Jesus saw a need. Jesus fulfilled that need. N.T. Wright, he's a theologian. He writes these words. He says, those who worship the true God are renewed according to the divine image. When this worship is exchanged for the worship of other gods, the result will be that this humanness, this image-bearing quality, is correspondingly distorted. For a long time, Zacchaeus had worshipped a false image. It was this false image of self. This is what he had worshipped. The things that were crooked and distorted inside of him had become his reality. Those were the things that were constantly being called out and brought to, brought to his attention. And then Jesus came along. And while Jesus didn't say, hey, Zacchaeus, you should worship me. You should worship differently. You should not worship this distorted image of yourself. You should worship differently. Jesus didn't say those words, but that's what Jesus accomplished in this brief exchange that he had with Zacchaeus. Romans 1.25, I'm going to read from, uh, let me just come up to that point though. Um, Paul, Paul has a lot to say in this first chapter of Romans about our propensity as human beings to dismiss the true worship that we get to choose to do. He has a lot to say about the ways in which we are crooked and distorted and that we begin to accept the crookedness and the distortion of our lives as the thing that we will worship. He's writing this to the Romans and he's addressing things that he knows they're dealing with. And so he says in verse 19, this won't be on the screen, but in verse 19 of Romans 1, he said, they know the truth because God about God because he has made it obvious to them. He's kind of just taken out all our excuses as human beings to say that, nope, you look at all of creation. Verse 20, he says, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, 
they, we can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. They knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And so I don't know about you, but as I look around the world today, I think we have confused about, we're very confused about who God is and what he is and what he wants from us, what he wants for us. We're very confused. And so we begin to create our own ideas. So in verse 25, of Romans 1, he says, they traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. So Zacchaeus, for example, began to worship the created idea of himself. Two verses before verse 25, I'm sorry, in verse 26 and 27 of Romans 1. Paul addresses the distortion, the belief that uh, the Romans had in that day of degrading each other sexually. Why did he address what we would look at as lesbian relationship, gay relationship? Why would he address that? Because it was a de degradation. They were, they were treating each other terribly in that day. He points at this as not just the only example of how we get distorted, but he's pointing at this and saying, look, God wants more for you than this. He goes on in verse 20, um, in 28, he says, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Now, I know that some of us in this space right now are thinking, well, I would never do those things. Okay, Brenda and I have lots of conversations. I know human nature and so do you. So let's see if we hit any on these. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. Anybody? They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that these who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. And worse yet, they encourage others to do the same. That's heavy. It's important for us, you and I, to determine, does Jesus call us to a life that is for the poor, for the destitute, for the marginalized? Does he call us to lives of influence? And if so, is it achieved through relationship or being right? If it is about relationship, what if we make it about learning from the other person instead of judging the other person. It seems to me, especially in this story of Zacchaeus in from Luke 19, that Jesus modeled a gracious, balanced approach of love, of grace, and of truth. 
If you haven't guessed yet, we're in a series called Hard Talk. It's hard to talk about some of these topics. Most of us don't want to talk about divisive things. We would rather avoid them. And so when it comes to gender, sexuality, politics, we usually live and let live. But then, the majority of you have kids, or you're going to have kids. And some of you are sitting here wondering this morning, how in the world do I talk to my children about these topics? And what I would say to you this morning, just on that particular question, is take responsibility to talk to them about it. Don't wait for society and culture to inform them. But you yourself take responsibility. You know what? You would never let your three-year-old just, uh, you take him out to the curb and you'd say, oh, honey, you know, there's cars coming and going. But if you, you know, if you want to run into the street, you just go ahead because, you know, you decide. You decide if that's appropriate or not. Of course you wouldn't do that. You give your life to protect that young child. Similarly, there are times in life at a certain age when they get to make decisions about a whole host of things. Don't make them guess about the direction that you want them to go, the things that you expect. Don't make them guess. When they're old enough, they can make some of those decisions and they will. But don't kid yourself. Give them good, godly advice. Help them know right from wrong. Several summers ago, um, and here's just, a, here's just a sort of a, Jesus got to talk to Zacchaeus because he was in proximity with him. Proximity is important. And so if you never rub shoulders or rub elbows or, or if you are never in the presence of people that are different from you, you will not have proximity and your influence is limited. So I would suggest to you that you get in proximity with people that are different than you, that think differently. We were at a party and uh, we were sitting with uh, two women who were married, are married, and we had a very interesting and insightful conversation. And Brenda and I wouldn't have been in that conversation had we not happened to be in proximity. So to this day, I don't know if I had any influence there at all or not, but I know I wouldn't have had had I not been in proximity with people different than me. Brenda and I have lots of conversations with some of you uh, as it relates to marriage matters. And we get a bird's eye view of what's happening in your relationship. And some of you are not married. You're living together. And yet when I speak about things that are uh, sexual experiences that are different than yours, immediately we begin to judge and condemn even though some of us are deep in sin in our lives, but it doesn't look the same as someone else next to us. The other thing that's hard to talk about is politics. And many of us 
uh, behaved quite well during the 2020 cycle. Many of us did not. And so as I look ahead, and I don't notice I didn't say as I look forward to, as I look ahead into the future and recognize that 2024 is just around the corner and the propensity for us to behave poorly is really, really good again. And what I would love to say to you is that we, we can do things differently. We don't need to repeat the patterns of the past. So this morning, I wanted to live and let live. You do you. It sounds warm and fuzzy and not, doesn't stir any waters. But you and I both know that that's not realistic. The way we view the world or the way that our, our worldview is shaped and how we act upon that worldview has a lot to do with the credibility we have in our communities and neighborhoods because if we say we follow Jesus, but then we practically live our lives very differently, we lose. The kingdom of God loses. It's maligned. And the purposes of God remain unfulfilled in us. So live and let live. Uh, it, I don't think it's what Jesus came to do. He did come to seek and save what is lost, disordered, and out of alignment. Live and let live, if carried out, is actually going to be uh, not going to be good for anyone. Often when we say this, what we really mean is you give up your values, but let me keep mine. You keep your, you take, you give up yours, but let me keep mine. We may think this means freedom, but true freedom, I don't believe, uh, I believe that true freedom is never experienced uh, when it's divorced from the truth. Let me say that again. True freedom is never experienced when it is divorced from the truth. I was in Portland, Oregon last summer. And um, I'll tell you that Portland, Oregon has loosened all what seems like most of their laws, uh, especially as it relates to um, homeless encampments, especially as it relates to drug use. Um, I saw no police officers out there the entire weekend. And uh, law and order seemed to be uh, not be present. <laughs> it, it was a sight to behold. What this, this once beautiful city was, is, is slipping into, very quickly, into decay. When we live and let live, and we don't have boundaries in place, we experience more sexual immorality. We experience more out-of-wedlock children. We experience more drug and alcohol addiction, and the list goes on and on. Additionally, uh, if you think about it, when our kids are raised in this kind of environment, they don't develop the self-discipline or moral fiber to create a stable and just society. Live and let live. You know, we find it relatively easy to hold on to an opinion as long as someone who shares an opposite opinion is not sitting across the table from us. As long as we're not at dinner with Zacchaeus, we can hold our opinion. As long as we don't put a face on the situation, we can be dogmatic and sure. But what if we engage with those who we deem a lost cause or someone we don't expect to have much in common with? What if we were curious? And what if that curiosity would be filled with empathy and a desire to learn? The story I started out with, with Zacchaeus, is filled 
with empathy and grace and mercy. So I know stepping out, it's risky. It means getting out of our normal routines, but in order to live into your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it requires us to engage the culture with a faith that takes action. I believe to do so, we need to not capitulate to every wind that blows, but we need to be, you and I, need to be spiritually equipped to stand firm in truth and live into the fruit of the Spirit. See, the, the truth without love is objectionable. The truth is even objectionable with love, but you wrap the truth in love and see what happens. It will become ever more impactful. We need to be filled with love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, until we as followers of Jesus take this seriously, until we assume the responsibility to embrace humility and engage in meaningful, empathetic conversations that reflect Christ's love and lead to transformation of hearts and minds, we're going to continue to see a society that is confused and disordered. This means leaning in with compassionate engagement without compromising God's standards. Zacchaeus got lunch. He got lunch with Jesus, and Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Zach was healed and whole because of Jesus. He was still a dwarf. Jesus didn't give him longer limbs, but he gave him something much better. He healed him. Made him a new man, new thoughts, new character, new actions. Would you stand with me? I'll close with this scripture from Ephesians 2. Let this inform your thinking, your connections, and your relationships this week. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that we've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you and I by his grace when we believed. And we cannot take credit for this it is a gift from Almighty God. Amen. This morning, we'll have the prayer team up front as we close our time together. And what I want you to know is, um, is that for every and any reason, prayer is uh, a pretty solid solution. But just as you interact with people tomorrow, maybe this afternoon, 
you'll make connections with people and you'll consider what we talked about this morning. And the challenge will be for you and I to look at other people with just so much grace without a judgmental bone in our body. That is the challenge. That's true for me and it's true for you. When we understand our own fallibility and our own propensity toward leaning into ways in which we are being called out of and not into. That's where we will find peace and joy. So let me pray for us and uh, the prayer ministry team will be up here this morning. And um, I would just suggest to you that uh, like every weekend, we invite you to come. There are things misaligned in your life. Let us pray for you. Let's just go to Jesus together. So Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm grateful for this, this, this people this morning and for the ways in which you are opening our hearts and minds to the truth of your word. Wherever we are misaligned and um, wherever we have disorder in our lives, where things are chaos, God, I would pray for peace to reign. I speak against the enemy this morning that would that would simply want to kill and destroy. And instead, we speak life and freedom over every person within my hearing. Father, we surrender ourselves to you this morning. We know that you are good, and we lean into that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Please rate and review us on Spotify and iTunes and join us again for next week's podcast. We love you and pray blessing and peace over you and your family.